And uh, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 9. While you're turning there, uh, we're in a season of wonderful ministry where Jesus is doing great things. And uh, by the way, we've had our couple of grandsons visiting this week and they, uh, Warren had a cold and I appreciate him sharing it with me. And, but I feel good in my spirit. I don't sound like it, but I feel good in my spirit. But anyway, today, uh, I just wanted to acknowledge the ministry of Brandon and Megan Marin. They've been a wonderful part of our church team and ministry, and he's been a part of our pastoral staff and one of the employees of our church. And due to a job change for Megan, after lots of prayer, they're going to be moving to Nashville. But I just wanted to say today how much I love them and appreciate them, and what a tremendous blessing they have been here and we want the Lord to use them to be a blessing there. And hyphen and worship leading and tremendous drummer. And uh, we're going to miss them. Now, the Lord is at work here right now. And uh, I feel like the, what the Lord has put in my heart today is to help us continue to see things uh, like just happened happen among us. Acts, 20, Acts chapter 9 verse 26 New King James Version. And when Saul, now this is the same man as Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, thank God for Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and now he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he, Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, same man, was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Verse 26 says that Saul tried to get in the church, but they wouldn't let him. My message today, my title is Knock Knock. You may be seated. Such a sacredness here today, and I thought I would pursue this by sharing my top 10 favorite knock knock jokes. <laughs> but really, I only have one. I have one favorite, and it's my all time favorite. Uh, but I don't know if you want to hear it or not. I, I don't know if you'd like to hear it or not. You'd like to hear it? Okay, thank you very much for all six of you. I'll tell it for you. <laughs> but you have to start it off, okay? When I say go, then I want you to start it off. Ready? Go. Who's there? And that awkward silence is my favorite part of my favorite knock-knock joke because there's nothing more awkward than not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, feeling like you've just been left hanging when you really want to try to be a part. And that's really what my message is about today. The awkward silence of loneliness, of trying to gain access to the church and not being let in. Knock, knock. 
Saul said, is anyone home? Well, in the past eight weeks, it's been nine now, our church has been engaged in a first semester of small groups. And I want to celebrate for a moment the 27 small groups, the 314 people who signed up to be a part of a small group. Would you please congratulate yourself if you were a part or if you're glad that it happened for someone else. I appreciate Kinsey Johns and I appreciate our 27 small group leaders and their families who made a commitment and sacrificed over this first semester of small groups to make people welcome in the family of God. We had a high level of participation. Small groups have been life-changing for many people. Small groups have strengthened the relational connections that are so vital to the spiritual growth and health that the church is all about. Small groups have helped us create more common ground so we can lead people to holy ground. We were singing about holy ground, and in the last few minutes of worship, we were standing in a holy place in the presence of God. And that is everything that we long for as a church, to bring people into a spiritual encounter with Jesus Christ that will change their life forever. And through small groups, we've connected members of the church. We've helped new people engage on, in common ground or on common ground with the prayer and hope and the result of seeing them come to holy ground. Small groups have helped us fulfill the biblical mandate that is part of the church, Acts 2.42, that we would have fellowship, not just with Jesus Christ, but with one another in the body of Christ. And the response of those involved in small groups has been incredibly encouraging, but we thought it might be helpful to you if you could hear it from a few people who were engaged in small groups in their own words. So if you'd please turn your attention to the screens, you're already doing that, and hear what small groups have done for several people. To me, small groups is about developing friendship. Definitely an eye-opener. I'd have to say that it was God-ordained is powerful. Uh, it was educational and I got to know people that I didn't know. Being able to meet new people, make new friends uh, with common interest in mind. I would say it was very eye-opening. I got the opportunity um, to sit and talk and get to know people that I've been going to church with and seeing every Sunday and Wednesday for the last 10 years and never actually had a real conversation with. So it was, it, it was very nice to be in a unfamiliar setting with not a familiar group of people and get to know them on a personal level. So I uh, signed up for Book, Snack, and Yak. The book was called Living Fit, and it was by Ronnie B. Floyd. And it was basically about uh, when you know your purpose, uh, in order for you to fulfill it, you need to be fit uh, both spiritually, physically, and uh, relationally with people in order to maximize you being able to fulfill your purpose. And it was really a blessing, and I found that not only did I get 
to the benefit of getting to know those people and forming those friendships, but also I grew spiritually and that was a really wonderful part of the experience that I wasn't necessarily expecting from a small group, but um, really, uh, really meant a lot to me. I was a part of the uh, Bible, books of the Bible, and it was just amazing what was going on there, and then the um, um, parenting on purpose, and just the way that God just was there, and the way that, you know, the people were brought together, and it's just awesome what God's doing. I just, I, I'm glad that I was a part of it. Um, I was in the tea time group. We met on Saturdays and went to different tea houses um, all around Atlanta. So it was a great experience getting to tour the city and um, visit different locations, have hot tea, bubble tea, and just different experiences all across the city. It was very impactful. We met, uh, we had a couple of visitors come throughout the session and it was, uh, it was very rewarding. Photography, small group, just watching people progress with their um, ability to um, handle their camera and take pictures. I was in a business group. It was educational. I learned a lot how to work with money and save and how to invest. Uh, the tea group was really adventurous. We went to this fancy hotel. We got to eat fancy food, though I left the hotel still hungry. And <laughs> that it was. Parenting on Purpose is an eye-opener for me and my husband. We learned a lot of things on how to be consistent with each other, um, on disciplining our kids, um, new ways to raise them, ways that I hadn't thought of before. Um, and in the Grill and Chill, we were able to meet other families, and the kids had time to play with other children um, and got to meet people we never never met before and just fellowship. It was very, we, we all felt like family. It was really nice, I enjoyed it. Amen, would you please give a hand to all of these wonderful people and especially to the small group leaders who made a commitment to make this work every week. And uh, I would really have to say that Emily's testimony about leaving the hotel hungry just really cracked me up. And Emily, that was pretty awesome. Well, let me tell you the story of a man who could not get in the church. When Saul knocked on the door of the church, they knew he was there, but he was not welcome. He just said, knock, knock. And knock, knock, didn't work for him at all. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Saul of Tarsus because I can understand why he had a hard time getting in the church. The people in Jerusalem, in the church, were afraid of him. He's, his name, his very name, Saul of Tarsus, struck terror in the heart of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. He was there when Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was stoned to death. And the Bible says that the people who stoned Stephen laid down their coats at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. In Acts chapter 7, after Stephen died and you move into Acts chapter 8, it says that Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution 
against the church that was at Jerusalem, so much so that it kind of dynamited people out of the city. They were scattered abroad because of the persecution that was catalyzed by Saul of Tarshish. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial, but Saul made havoc of the church. He went in every house he could. He hauled men and women to prison and committed them to being in prison for just being a Christian. In Acts chapter 9, Saul's persecution gets worse. Chapter 9 opens with this saying that Saul was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus Christ. He went to the high priest and he got letters so that he could go outside of Jerusalem all the way to the city of Damascus. And if he found any Christian there who was worshiping in a Jewish synagogue, that he could also throw them in prison as well, bringing them bound to Jerusalem. So off Saul went to Damascus, ready to kill a few more Christians, throw some more in jail, compel some to blaspheme. His agenda was destroying what he saw was an enemy against God and his work. Every waking thought was destroying Christianity. He saw it as a dangerous cult. He made it his mission to wipe out these evil people from the face of the earth because they threatened to replace generations of Judaism for which he stood very strong. But something happened to this religious zealot while he was on his way to Damascus. He was near the city when suddenly this man who had arrested so many Christians was arrested by Jesus Christ himself. There was a blinding light that shone down out of heaven. Later, he would say it was brighter than the noonday sun. It shone in his eyes so brightly that it blinded him and knocked him to the earth. And a voice from heaven said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knew it to be the voice of the Lord. And he was puzzled by God Almighty speaking from heaven and saying, why are you persecuting me? Because in Saul's mind, he wasn't persecuting Almighty God, the Jehovah of Israel. He was killing Christians. But the Lord said to him, I am Jesus that you are persecuting. What a wonderful revelation that the almighty God of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh. I am Jesus that you are persecuting. And all along the way while we read of Saul's persecution, the Lord said it is hard for you to kick against those sharp goads of conviction that are stabbing you in the side. Maybe it's when he saw the look on Stephen's face. His face was like an angel as he looked up to the Lord and said, lay not this sin to their charge. Maybe it was the, the, the commitment of people or even those who compelled to blaspheme when Saul saw that. It was stabbing him in the heart, but he was running as hard as he could to wipe out Christianity. Saul said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus. And then Saul said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Saul, I want you to arise and go into the city of Damascus. And when you get there, someone's going to tell you what to do. Now, let me just clarify this. God knows how to speak for himself. 
and God spoke to Saul of Tarshish from out of heaven. But when it came to telling Saul how to be saved, God did not tell him how to be saved. He said, I'm going to send a man who's going to tell you what to do. Let me remind you that Jesus has commissioned us to go tell everyone, everywhere, what they must be do, what they must do to be saved. He could have told Saul himself, when he said, you just go to Damascus and you're going to find out. And Saul got up from the ground. He opened his eyes, but he couldn't see anyone. For three days, he was completely blind, and he didn't eat or drink anything. He was in such a state of conviction and commitment to Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, in Damascus, there was a certain disciple, not an apostle, not a leader of the church, just a normal person like you and me. And the Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision, and Ananias did what every good believer should say. He said, here am I, Lord. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said, I want you to get up, go to a street called Straight, to the house of Judah. There's a man there named Saul of Tarshish, and he is praying. Now, Ananias is not all excited about what Jesus just told him. The Lord said, Ananias, Saul is seen in a vision, a man named Ananias, that would be you, coming in, laying your hands on him, and him being healed from his blindness. And Ananias said, Lord, I think maybe this is a terrible idea. I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And I've also heard that he's come here to do the same. He's got authority from the chief priest and he's come to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord, can you imagine this conversation? Said back to Ananias, go, for I want you to know that he's a chosen vessel unto me. He's going to bear my name before kings and the children of Israel and I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias got up. He went to the street called Straight He went to the house of Judas. There was Saul praying, blinded, humble before the Lord. Ananias, a saint in the church, a person just like you, laid his hands on Saul of Tarshish. He was healed of his blindness, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. And Ananias took him out and baptized him in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And Saul of Tarshish, the persecutor, Became a believer just like that. Wow. Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. They must have received him there. The Bible tells us that immediately he preached Christ, who he was, in all the synagogues, that he was the son of God. And then everyone who heard him was amazed to think that a man like that could turn so quickly and those who, that man who destroyed the faith would now preach the same Jesus. The same man that bound people and threw them in jail was now preaching a message that would release them from their spiritual bondage. And Saul increased more in strength and he confounded his Jewish brothers who 
were there in Damascus and he proved to them by the Bible, by the Old Testament, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. What an amazing testimony for Saul of Tarshish. The Jews were not real happy about this. And in Damascus, they thought, we need to do to Saul what he's done to all those Christians. So they hatched a plot to kill Saul of Tarshish. But somehow, the plot was known to Saul. And they watched the gates day and night, these Jews did, ready when Saul came in, or Saul went out, that they would kill him. That's how much they hated him because evidently it had rubbed off on them the persecution, persecuting spirit of Saul of Tarsus. Now here is this man, Saul of Tarsus. His name was changed to Paul. He would become the greatest apostle of the New Testament church. And here he is now in a very vulnerable place in his life. Fear of life. He could die at any moment. And in the middle of the night, some disciples in Damascus put Paul in a big basket and they lowered him over the wall in the middle of the night and he escaped and went to Jerusalem. Look at Acts 9.25. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And I will never forget my friend, Jerry Jones, preaching on Paul in a basket. That everyone, no matter how great they become, has a time in their life of vulnerability when they are a fledgling Christian, when they need someone to come to them because they're in a place of weakness and need. That's why the church must be there for them. Saul is saved from being killed and travels back to Jerusalem. He cannot wait to get there where he's going to meet up with all of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was raised up there at the feet of Gamaliel, trained in Jewish theology, the great theologian of the day. And now here comes Saul of Tarsus, fully in love with Jesus, preaching the gospel, and he cannot wait to connect with the church. There's a great revival going on in Jerusalem. They filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Jesus. A great company of the priests have been obedient to the faith. And Saul is looking forward to joining the thousands of newborn believers, his Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. What a welcome sight for Saul of Tarshish to walk to the proverbial door of the church and knock, knock, let me in. And they knew who he was. And effectively, they said, sorry, Saul, you're not welcome here. Look at Acts 9.26. We read it a while ago. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, and did not believe that he was a disciple. Are you kidding me? Saul, this great conversion experience, trying to get in the church, 
They won't let him in. Imagine that. They were afraid of him. He wasn't their kind. Sorry, Saul. Not welcome here. Knock, knock. Nobody's home. <laughs> I understand their fear. Such a terror he had been to the church. Witnessing the stoning of Stephen. Breathing out threatening and slaughter. Catalyzing persecution against the church. Putting people in prison. One of the most stunning remarks that Paul would say of himself is that he compelled men to blaspheme. That means that they were Christians and under the pressure of Saul, they denied the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. And when they were put to death, he gave his voice against them. Maybe he was a member of the Sanhedrin, some believe, and he voted to have Christians put to death. This is a very intimidating man. Saul of Tarshish. Now he's claiming to be a different man. Not a threat at all. A fellow brother in Jesus Christ knocking on the door of the church. They're not letting him in. Not here. You can go back to Damascus if you want to go to church. You're not coming to church here in Jerusalem because we don't trust you. We don't believe you. We don't think that God's really changed your life. They slammed the door shut in his face. Locked it, threw away the key, you know. Knock, knock. No way, go away, Saul. Not getting in here. Imagine this, that the church in Jerusalem rejected the man who after Jesus Christ would be the most influential man in the history of the Christian church. Sorry, Saul, we don't welcome your kind here. Can you imagine that? That they would tell him to go away? Now, I want to talk to you today about opening the doors of the church and welcoming people who you might be suspect of at first. We thank God that we believe that we should know them that labor among us and we don't put a person in ministry. I preached about, taught about this recently, that God will test you before he entrusts you. And we believe that people should kind of grow in Christ before they're entrusted with the position in the church. But that's not what this is about. Saul was not asking for a pulpit. He wants to worship. He wants to connect. He wants to be a part of a small group. He wants to fellowship with them. And there's a tendency in churches to get ingrown, stagnant, and that danger is a clear and present danger all the time. And we as a church, individually, as church leaders, must continually be vigilant to make sure that we are inclusive instead of exclusive. That the door is not slammed in the face of a person who may have issues from trying to connect with Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. We've got to continually open our hearts to new people who want to be a part of the church. It is vital to the health of the church. And reaching lost people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the mission of the church. That's who we are. That's what we do. Just a few weeks ago on October 13th, you may remember that I preached on the autopsy of a deceased church. 
And I gave nine indicators of a church that is on its way out to spiritual death. I want to just remind you of five of those things that have to do with this idea of people trying to get in the church. The church refuses to look like the community. The budget moves inwardly. The Great Commission becomes the Great Omission. The church rarely prays together, and the church has no clear mission. Well, to all of you, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I want to tell you that I thank God for what has happened in this semester, the inaugural semester of small groups, because we have flung the door of the church more wide open than it's been in the last 24 years that I have served here as pastor. I thank God for everyone, for the 314 people who have found a place of welcoming, where the welcome mat has been rolled out and said, you are welcome here. But if someone has knocked on the door of your life or your family, and whether it's because you're too busy or you're not sure about them or whatever the reason may be, if you have stiff-armed them, if you have closed a relational door to them, today I'm inviting you to do what God is calling his church to do, to roll out the welcome mat and said it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done, if Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins, if Jesus died for you on the cross, you are welcome here. When you say knock, knock, we say come in. Our small groups have renewed our awareness that our church has got to be more inclusive and welcoming. I cannot even imagine how Paul felt after everything he had given up. I do understand the perceived threat of Saul that was coming from the outside. But my experience is that when people try to get in the church to many churches, it is not the threat on the outside that is the greatest problem. It is the threat on the inside. Where people's hearts are closed. Their cliques are closed. To someone who needs a place to connect to Jesus Christ. My business today is to encourage every one of us to open our hearts to people who may make us uncomfortable or even afraid. If you think it's bad that Saul couldn't get in the church, I was thinking about a time when Jesus couldn't get in the church. The church in Laodicea was closed for business. The Laodiceans, that church there, saw themselves rich, increased with goods, having need of nothing. They were a self-contained church that had their act together in a closed circle of fellowship. They had great church, great programs, great ministries. They thought that they were just right with God. But when Jesus spoke to them in Revelation 3.17, he said that what you don't know is the way I see you, that you are wretched 
and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You may know that Laodicea was that lukewarm church. They weren't really hot and they weren't really cold. They were happy in their complacency. They were happy just keeping on doing the same things over and over and over. And they weren't really bad and they weren't really good. And Jesus said, I really wish that you would either be hot or cold. Make up your mind to get in or get out. I'm here today to tell you that God has no use for a lukewarm Christian or a lukewarm church. He said, you need to get on fire for me. You need to get hot in the spirit. If you don't, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Come on, saint of God. Come on, Atlanta West. This is not business as usual. This is not a closed society. This is the church of Jesus Christ on mission for him in this world. And Jesus gave them a word of counsel. You need to buy me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich. You need to ask me for raiment that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not appear. And you need to anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may be able to see. The danger of Laodicea is just not being really bad, not being really good, but just being happy with who you are, but being blinded to who you are. I've said it many times, but most Christians have a really good magnifying glass and they have a terrible mirror. But every one of us need to look into the mirror of God's word and see ourselves the way he sees us and get the magnifying glass off of Saul of Tarshish and everybody else and trying to pick at their flaws and imperfections and see that Jesus is calling us to open our hearts to people who are in search of a savior. Why don't you clap your hands to the Lord just to open your heart to him. Now, you may think the words of Jesus were harsh for Laodicea, but he said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. If you're reading through your Bibles, you've been through the Old Testament prophets. You know, there's a lot of judgment, condemnation, a lot of harsh words for the people of God who drew near him with their lips, but heart was their heart was far from him. There's a lot in the Bible that is corrective by nature, but it is not because God is a negative God. He wants you to go to heaven. He wants you to be sold out for him. He doesn't want you to be in love with anything but him, and thus it's before him, amen? Unless it's after him, pardon me. And then, here is the relationship of Jesus Christ to the Laodicean church. Revelation 3 and 20, look at this verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, This is the Lord of the church standing on the outside wanting to get into Laodicea. I'm standing at the door and knocking. You say, well, if he wants to come in, let him kick down the door. He's God. But that's not the way it works. He designed the relationship that you have to open the door. And he said, if you will open the door, I will come in. I'll have a meal with you. You can fellowship with me. That's what the church is all about. Opening the door to Jesus and opening the door to people. And when you won't let them in, 
It's probably because you won't let him in. Knock, knock. He's there. They call me Jesus. I just want to come in. And you're so busy. You're so wrapped up in the tight little package of yourself. You don't have time for me. You certainly don't have any time to open your heart that maybe a guy like Saul of Tarshish could come in to your church. Put yourself in the place of Saul of Tarshish. He has had an amazing encounter with God. After arresting so many Christians, Jesus Christ has arrested him. He's walked away from Judaism. He suffered the loss of all things. He's growing in God. The Bible says in this chapter that he was increasing in strength. He's already faced persecution and the threat of death. He has great revelation that Jesus is the son of God. And he proved that Jesus was the anointed Messiah of Old Testament scripture. This guy's got a lot going for him. Paul had no problem with his relationship with Jesus Christ. His problem was with the relationship with the church. It wasn't Christ that was giving him trouble. It was the body of Christ who wouldn't let him in. Imagine all the potential of the apostolic ministry of Saul of Tarshish standing at the door of that church in Jerusalem, knocking, knocking, knocking. They're like, no way, dude, you're not getting in here. Verse 27, but Barnabas. Barnabas is an amazing man. He is called the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. And Barnabas, who embodies encouragement in the Bible, if it said you are the son of something, some trait, some characteristic, it meant you personified or embodied that. You remember there are some people who are called the son of Belial? You're like the devil? Not Barnabas. He embodies encouragement. He's very wealthy. He's a man who sold land, gave it. He would later salvage the ministry of John Mark. Barnabas believes in people. He searches Saul and Tarshish later in your Bible. But now he sees what God has done for Saul, that he is sincere, and Barnabas puts his credibility on the line. He brings him to the apostles. He tells them what God had done for him when he met him on the road to Damascus. Barnabas told them how he preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus Christ. What we need at Atlanta West is some people like Barnabas to say, hey, I know we're not sure about this person. Is their experience real? But I think I'll put my credibility and my name on the line. I'll open my door, open my home, open my heart, clear out my schedule. I'm going to make room for somebody who is knocking on the door of the church trying to get in. That's what we need is a person like Barnabas. What would Paul have done in this season of his life when he is more like Paul in the basket than he is Paul in a pulpit? Someone befriended him 
And Barnabas used his connections to the church to give Paul connections to the church. The great apostle to the Gentiles who would write a majority of the epistles in your Bible, some 13 books. He saw spiritual revelations that were too deep and sacred to share. He would open entire cities and nations to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But on this day, he can't get anybody to open the door except Barnabas. And Barnabas made the difference for Saul of Tarshish so he could become the great apostle Paul. I, I wonder, I wonder who at work, who in your neighborhood, where you work, play, and all of that, and live, spiritually knocking on the door, waiting for someone to open the door of common ground to lead them to holy ground. Let me tell you a story. Merritt and Lindsay Burdett are new and not new to our church. Merritt's new, Lindsay's not. Lindsay was raised around here, Lindsay Brown. She gave this testimony that I want to share with you today. She said, small groups has been great for my family. I will admit I was skeptical at first as I am not the most outgoing person. I usually have to be dragged out to do things. My biggest flaws are that I'm on the shyer side at times and I avoid too much in life due to being legally blind. My husband and I signed up for Friends and Finance with David Turner and Grill and Chill with Ricky and Wendy Barker's family. We thought we'd attend both and stick with the one that we liked the best. Or maybe we would make it along with juggling beside our busy schedules. We didn't know that we could even stay in a small group. Lindsay said, we ended up liking and continuing with both. Lindsay said, it can be hard to make connections in passing before and after church as we go through the hustle and bustle of daily life, rushing around just to get food and sleep in before the next thing. Sometimes, Lindsay said, we have things happen in our lives that cause us to close ourselves off from other people. Things that make us feel disconnected, such as where we come from or something we have experienced or things we don't know yet. She said, for my family, that was being new to the church and losing our son last year. It can be tough to fight that feeling of being disconnected or wanting to hide out. Although I didn't realize it in the beginning, the church implementing small groups was that little push we needed to get more connected. Through small groups, Lindsay said, we have met and formed friendships with quite a few people. My husband and three girls look forward to it every week. Brother David Turner and the Barkers were so great. I met people with kids the same ages as my own. People who are in similar places in life. People of all ages. People who are encouraging, funny, sweet, and have some great stories and testimonies to share. I become reacquainted with people I haven't seen in years 
and as silly as it may sound, met for the first time people that I sit near at church every week. It was a blessing to learn of someone else dealing with the visual impairment like myself or to laugh about someone about life with kids or hear about some little thing that can make my walk with God easier. This is what I have learned. The people who show up to these groups are like people are people who want to make a connection with others and form friendships. People reaching out and making the effort like yourself. Real people who want to live a good, clean Christian life and really get to know others who want to do the same. There is no pressure and no judgment in small groups. It is such a positive thing to take time out to hang out with people who put God first in their lives. Who knows how much the conversations and fellowship contributed to my husband getting baptized in the name of Jesus recently, and it was two weeks ago. Many, How many of my friends have heard me talk about these groups and thought maybe they will join me or sometime or check out my church in the future. Lindsay said, I highly suggest both the friends and finance group and the grill and chill group and the 25 other groups I would recommend. And there'll be more in February. You can't go wrong with learning something useful, enjoying good company and eating good food. With all the different choices, I venture to say, there is a group that is the right fit for everyone's personalities and needs. Wow, Lindsay, we should have paid you to say that. <laughs> Two weeks ago, after I preached the message in search of a savior, we prayed in the altar and I was standing about right there when Merrick almost came running across this, down this aisle, across the front of the church, Merrick came over to me and he was so excited. He said, Brother Johns, would you baptize me in Jesus' name? Merrick had received the gift of the Holy Ghost at another church and he was baptized there, but he couldn't remember what they said when, he, when they baptized him. He had seen in the Bible that water baptism in the Bible, the Bible way is to be baptized in water for them to say, I now baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He couldn't remember. And they went to an event at their old church and he was talking to someone there and he said, hey, you were there when I was baptized. What did they say when they baptized me? And that friend of his said, you know, we always baptize people in the titles, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And Merritt knew immediately that while he was sincere, and they might have been sincere, that that's not what the Bible teaches. And I had noticed Merritt and Brother Alex Seche sitting right back over there after church one, one day or evening, I don't remember which, and Merritt said, you know, Brother Seche, Brother Alex Seche, talk to me about being baptized in Jesus' name. Merritt came to me. We went back. He was baptized in water in the name of Jesus Christ. He'd already received the Holy Ghost, but when he came out of the water, he was speaking in tongues again as the Spirit gave him the utterance. You know what I say? Thank God that when Merritt and Lindsay knocked on the church, that somebody said, hey, why don't you come on in?
Why don't we stand right now and thank God that someone welcomed us into Christ's body. Today we're not launching a new semester of small groups. We are celebrating what Jesus Christ did through you in the last eight weeks that we had small groups. And I want to encourage you when you have an opportunity to be like Lindsay and Merritt and 314 people and sign up. And when I preach a message, I always ask a so what question. So what does that mean to somebody who is standing here today? And I want to tell you that the arms of Jesus Christ are wide open to you today. And that the heart of this church is wide open. If you're knocking on the door trying to find Jesus, if you're trying to get connected to his body, the church, then today I want you to know that you are welcome here. We will not turn you away. And Jesus will not reject you. So when our church family comes to pray today, would you come with us? And would you open your heart to Jesus Christ and to his church? If you're part of our church family, would you open wide your heart to receive people who are coming to Jesus through us? Why don't you come right now to the altar? Amen. Why don't you come to this altar? Bring your hurt and your pain. Bring your needs. with someone, a family member, your lady, another lady, man, another man. And I want you to pray for them right now. You never know where a person is, what they're struggling with, what they need. So wherever you are right now, would you please pray? Pray with someone. Someone who's knocking, knocking. That's it. I'm inviting every altar counselor to find someone. Pray with them in Jesus' name. If you feel disconnected, the door is open. Why don't you connect with Jesus Christ right now?